what I would like to do, maybe we'll even make this a tradition, is uh, I'd like to hear from you if you've had any interesting discussions with um, people in the last week or two about your faith, any opportunities to put some of the stuff that we've been talking about into practice, whether successful or unsuccessful. And hopefully I'm not met every week with total silence. <laughs> but um, any of you had an opportunity lately to share your faith, talk about Christianity, defend the Christian uh, worldview, and maybe would be willing to share a story or two? <laughs> okay, it's so cold she hasn't been out of her house. <laughs> Good excuse. Uh, yeah, Lori, in the back. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think I, uh, I think I met her. Okay. Good. Any other conversations you've had lately that have been interesting, helpful, provocative? Yes. Very interesting. I'm sure many of us are confronted with situations where people take the Lord's name in vain. And it is kind of awkward to know how to respond because on one hand, you're sort of mulling over, okay, do I make an issue out of this? Do I 
defend this person, on and on and on. But um, uh, you know, one might think of it from this angle, and that is that probably very few of us would put up with someone using in vain our mother's name, our wife's name, our children's name. In other words, someone that's close and dear to us making fun of them or in some way, shape, or form using their name in a derogatory way. But then when it comes to God, we're sort of, oh, I don't know if I want to say anything. I don't want to offend. I don't want but, you know, Muslims will kill you if you speak negatively about Muhammad. And even though we may not necessarily appreciate that, because sometimes it does shut down robust conversation about who Muhammad is and what he stood for, uh, there, there should be a, some measure of respect that at least they're passionate about their prophet and are willing to take actions to defend him. So very, very interesting uh, how to respond when someone takes the Lord's name in vain or speaks of God in a derogatory way. Thanks for sharing. Anyone else? We're talking about uh, any opportunities you've had lately to defend the Christian faith, share your faith, etc. Joe? Okay, good. Excellent. Um, for those of you that maybe that didn't hear, he's just talking about his, his parents. They believe that, you know, God is a Sunday morning only, a smo, right? Sunday morning only. And uh, the rest of the week is sort of put him on the proverbial shelf. Yeah. I, in fact, there's probably a few Christians that live their lives as if that were true, even though they would never say it. But anything else? Anyone else interesting? Dialogue, stories, opportunities to share your faith in the last couple of weeks. Okay, well, we're going to make maybe make a tradition out of asking that question, and that'll just kind of stimulate some conversation, hopefully give us an opportunity to uh, help each other along and also encourage each other to take advantage of the opportunities that uh, come our way. Excellent. Okay, so uh, tonight we're going to look at deism. Then we're going to look at pantheism. And then we're going to get into one expression of pantheism, notably the Hindu faith. And uh, there's many Hindus that live in our own community, so this is relevant to doing apologetics in the Canadian context. So let's start by uh, talking about deism. Could anyone tell the class in a summary fashion what deism essentially is all about? Give us kind of a working definition. What does it mean to be a deist as opposed to a theist? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Okay, Nicole? Yeah? Okay, very good. Excellent. There's a God. He set the world in motion, and now he's hands off. That's a great definition. So sometimes he's been called in deism the cosmic clockmaker. Now, this may not be a great uh, analogy for those of us that are used to electric digital plug-in clocks. But back in the day when you had to wind the clock up, 
the illustration was sufficient. So deism basically says there is a God. He got the world going. He's creator. And then he sort of walked away. Now, there's, of course, many people that live their lives in a practical way, sort of viewing God that way, even some theists that don't feel God's presence or really live as if he has an intimate knowledge of their lives day by day. But this is more of a philosophical or maybe even a theological perspective on God, that he created the world, but he's absent. He's like a vacant landlord. He may show up occasionally to collect the rent, but apart from that, he's not going to be there when the roof starts leaking or the tap starts leaking. So there's a whole list of names there. Some of them you might recognize, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, um, David Hume, Immanuel Kant, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. These are were, these were people that if you read their writings, you're probably going to conclude they're, they're deists uh, in their thinking. So basic elements of deism, I've just listed three of them there, that God created the world but is not actively involved in sustaining the world that there's nothing supernatural. So interestingly, the deist would deny or downplay the validity of miracles. They wouldn't see God sort of involved in miraculous events because he's absent. For there to be a miracle implies that God showed up. And so they would not affirm the supernatural. They generally are not Trinitarian. Christ is not God. They simply believe that there is one God. Christ is not that God. So that's deism sort of in a, in a nutshell. Now, uh, we always like to point out some of the positives in any particular worldview because there probably are some. And um, one positive would be that they emphasize natural revelation. They do look for the way that God manifests himself in the natural order. Oftentimes, we forget about that. And even in our apologetics, we don't point to natural phenomenon in the natural world that imply that there's something greater than us. So when you look at the... The anatomy of the human body, uh, the anatomy of the human brain, uh, the amount of data and information that it can collect. Or when you look at the, the processes of uh, a child uh, with a different blood type than its mother forming in its mother's womb, there's a whole complex, interesting series of events that take place in the placenta to allow for that to happen. For uh, nutrients to be processed in the mother, transferred to the baby, even though they have different blood types. If you just get a different blood type injected, you're going to have big problems. But there's some interesting things about the human placenta that allows for the nutrients to be filtered to without problems with the mixing of blood. So lots and lots of illustrations that we could look at in the natural world to say, hey, you know, maybe there's something about all these complex systems that suggest that there is a complex creator. So DS, even though they probably wouldn't spend a lot of time in that, they do point to natural revelation and not just supernatural revelation. And then there's also a stress on reason. So they would demand, you know, reasons, rational arguments for the existence of God. They are wary of miracles. Now you might say, well, that's probably not a good thing. But I think uh, as thinking Christians, we should be in some ways wary of miracles. We need to make sure that we're not labeling things miracles that aren't miracles. And we need to make sure that we don't allow everyone who says they saw a miracle to, you know, necessarily, uh, uh, we don't necessarily need to believe that every time someone says they saw a miracle, they saw a miracle. By the way, just with regard to miracles, we need to make sure that we have a proper working definition. Miracles, by nature, are violations of the created order. 
So it's when God works outside of biological or chemical or logical processes. He violates the laws of nature that he has set in motion. So therefore, if we want to use the word miracle properly, we never refer to birth as a miracle. Technically, it's not a miracle because when a baby's born, it's actually following the processes of biology. It's not contrary to nature for babies to be born. It's awesome. It's pretty cool to witness, but it actually isn't a miracle. And uh, someone asked me recently, well, is, is conversion a miracle? That's an interesting question in and of itself. Uh, technically, no, it's not. Because a miracle is a violation of the natural order. Conversion is a supernatural event that takes place within a person's life. Thank you very much. Anybody need additional notes? Okay. Actually, TJ, would you just mind handing these out for me? Thanks. Yeah, they're the same notes as before. It's just some people haven't received them yet. So if you could just keep your hand up, TJ will get some for you. Oh, okay. Um, hey, Rob. Uh, I think I only sent a couple to the copier, so if it, if it keeps coming out, there might be a problem. You can just hit cancel after the last one. <laughs> Maybe I typed in 200 instead of two. <laughs> so who knows? Okay, so... Um, what were we talking about? Uh, conversion. Conversion actually, I mean, it's, it's awesome, it's supernatural, but technically it doesn't qualify as a miracle because it's an event that takes place outside of biological or, or the human constructs. It's, it's, it's a miracle in the spiritual realm, but not in the physical. Uh, then we uh, also have the fact that uh, maybe one of the positive contributions of deism is it's forced us to think about apologetics. In other words, um, deists provide a bit of opposition or pushback. And whenever you get a pushback, you tend to think a little more clearly about what you believe, right? So this would be true of any worldview or alternative uh, religion. Whenever you get some pushback, you tend to think a little more clearly about why you believe what you believe. Here's some problems with deism. Uh, one of the things you could ask a deist when they sort of say, well, I don't believe in miracles, is why? Why is that such a, a big deal for you? Do you believe that God miraculously created the world? Yeah. Then why can't he do miracles now? Or uh, who says that God can only be the creator but not the, uh, thank you, not the sustainer of the world? Anyone else? We're good? not the sustainer of the world. I mean, why do you have such a problem with the idea of God as sustainer, but you don't have a problem with God as creator? What is it that bothers you about the idea of God as sustainer? Or if God was concerned enough to create, why would God not be concerned enough to help us now? If God created us but doesn't help us, then he's kind of like a man that gets a woman pregnant and has, wants nothing to do with the child which implies some sort of a moral deficit in God's character or makeup. Why would God create and not take an interest in his children? Or you can ask questions like, if there is no supernatural revelation, why do you believe in a supernatural creation? Kind of similar question to the first one. Or five, uh, when they attack, for instance, biblical, the, the accuracy of the Bible, uh, one uh, counter-argument that you could use is, just simply to say, prove it. And by the way, this argument can be used by, uh, by you for almost any attack that you receive with regard to Scripture. And it's, it's a very simple process. It almost always works. And I've used it. 
So someone will say to me, uh, I don't believe the Bible's true. Or I think the Bible's been changed. That's a really common one. I think the Bible's been changed over time. And generally that's because they have absolutely no knowledge of how the Bible was transmitted. Like they think that the English Bible is a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. It's, that's just not true. So people will say stuff like that and then normally when that happens you feel like you're on the defensive, right? And you need to then somehow come up with an argument to prove that the Bible's true. Well, what I often like to do is pick up a Bible and just hand it to them and say, okay, show me the errors. Now, 99.9% .9 of people can't. It, that, that method in and of itself doesn't prove the Bible to be true, of course. But what it does is it sort of puts the onus back on the person making the accusation to make sure their accusation is valid and logical. So show me, where, where are the changes in the Bible? Show me where they are. And again, almost nobody can say, uh, uh, yeah, here, here's, here's the problem. And then from there, you know, once you're sort of now on an equal playing field, where neither person is necessarily uh, you know, on, on the defensive or the offensive over and above the other person, then maybe you can have an intelligent conversation about how the Bible actually came about, transmission of Scripture, what, where versions come from, all that kind of stuff. And if you want to know more about that, you have to take my course on biblical origins. But for now, at least it, it puts the onus back on the person not to make ludicrous claims that they can't back up. By the way, when you begin to think this way, you're going to see a lot of this stuff in uh, reality, not reality shows, but in um, archaeological shows. So I don't know if you've ever seen The Naked Archaeologist. It's, there's no naked men in it, okay? But uh, The Naked Archaeologist is a guy that sort of goes around and he... He looks at biblical, uh, biblical uh, cities that are mentioned in the Bible. He looks at uh, kind of different ruins and archaeological finds in Israel and so forth. And he, he uses them in some senses to affirm the biblical account, but he also feels quite comfortable challenging the biblical account. And if you don't think clearly about what he's saying or the claims that he was making, you can e easily come away kind of with this unsettling feeling, this is an archaeologist, he's an expert, and there's something wrong with my faith. But if you listen carefully, a lot of his arguments are really not good arguments. I'll just give you an example of one. One episode, he's looking at some of the fortified cities that Solomon fortified. So he'd go to one city, and he would look at the structure of the gates outside of the city. And then he would travel to the south and he'd look at the structure of the gates on another fortified city. And he'd say, they don't match. There are different styles of gates. They were probably built in completely different eras and therefore Solomon couldn't have possibly built the gates that way. Well, that's just not a good argument. Like, who's to say that Solomon has to build the gates the same in every single fortified city that he puts together? It's just not a good argument. It's like if you've owned multiple houses and you've had an opportunity to build a fence in the backyard at various houses, you're not all gonna, always going to pick the same design. Uh, nor does it necessarily mean that Solomon was employing the same work crews. They could have been built 30, 40 years apart. Maybe they changed the normal way to build gates during that time. But again, if this guy's an archaeologist and he's just throwing stuff like that out, 
challenging the accuracy of Scripture, you can sort of go away with this unsettling feeling that, you know, the Bible's not an accurate reflection of human history. So you just have to be careful about stuff like that and force people to try to uh, prove that the Bible's been changed rather than just allowing them to constantly come at you to try to make you prove that it hasn't been changed. So allow for them to be some, some back and forth. Okay, so that's um, a little bit of deism. Yeah. <laughs> very strategic. You're a very strategic man, Jack. Well, interestingly, um, it is true, and we'll talk about this when we talk about Jehovah's Witnesses a little bit more, but their translation is spurious, meaning it is deliberately in error. So one of the interesting things about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses is that there's, there's three different kinds of ancient Greek, and the, the kind of ancient Greek that the New Testament scriptures were written in is called Koine Greek, which is common Greek. Same alphabet as classical Greek, as modern Greek, as um, uh, other forms of Greek, but it is, it's different. There's some, there's some different, grammatical chain, different grammatical issues in it and so forth and so on. The two or three guys that were commissioned to come up with a New World translation, the translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses to uh, use, were um, people who had taken some coursework, they weren't scholars, they'd taken some coursework in classical Greek. And these were the fellows that were commissioned to translate the New World Translation. So not only do you have some scholastic issues there, but they also felt comfortable uh, departing from some kind of classical accepted norms as to how uh, one translates Greek in order to uh, prop up, I'll say, their particular view of theology, in particular Trinitarian theology, or lack thereof. So <clears throat> there's really no uh, true Greek scholar in the world, be it an Islamic scholar or a Catholic scholar, a Protestant scholar, or Orthodox scholar that would accept the New World Translation as a valid translation of the biblical texts. There's just, there's nobody out there outside of the, the kingdom hall that would even uh, uh, accept that translation as, as valid. It's, it has deliberately been altered. So I had a little bit of fun with this once. I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, when Susie and I were living downtown, we, uh, we were visited a couple of times by some fellas from the kingdom hall. And one of these guys came to the house, and I sort of 
in the course of conversation, uh, was at the door, was having a conversation with him about the translation of John 1. Okay? I didn't tell him what I did for a living. I didn't tell him that I actually could read Greek, um, which I can, but I didn't tell him that. And so I just started asking him like some questions, like, um, uh, hey, have you ever heard of uh, Granville Sharp's rule in Greek? And I started kind of playing dumb and talking to him about his, his translation of, of uh, John 1. And uh, so he, he went back and he brought back, the next time he came, a book written by the Jehovah's Witnesses kind of explaining how John 1 was to be translated. And I sort of played around with him a little bit and had some fun with him. But eventually I just challenged him. I, I basically said, you're a liar. Because you're going around telling, you're going around taking your book, which has your little watchtower publication in the back, justifying your position. But your book is the only Greek book in the world, in any religion, that would validate your misuse of the New Testament manuscripts and your uh, blatant denial of what's called Granville Sharp's rule in Greek, where one article can govern two nouns joined by a verb, which is what's going on in John chapter 1, verse 1. And what disturbs me about that is that there's a lot of people, uh, obviously there's probably very few people out there that can read Greek or would care to, but people can go around and be duped into that movement because they just don't know it, right? And you got this guy out there that has this much information, but he's, he has enough to be dangerous and to convince people otherwise that somehow the Christian Bible's been changed, we've mistranslated it, and on and on and on. They go around telling lies. I had another situation where Jehovah's Witnesses came to my house, and uh, we had a boarder at the time. They'd come in. They were at my dinner table with our boarder, and they were telling us that Christians believe in three gods. So again, not knowing who I was, I sat down and invited myself into the conversation. And he was telling my boarder, Alan, that Christians believe that there's three gods. And I said, um, I'm pretty sure that's not true. Oh, yeah, they do. They believe in three gods. I said, I, man, I, thinking back, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> if I remember correctly, that I was taught growing up that Christians don't believe in three gods, but that there is one God who eternally manifests himself in three persons, I think. No, 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 that's not true. Christians believe in three gods. I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure Christians believe that God is one, one in essence, manifesting himself eternally in three persons. No, that's not what they believe. And they, then they brought a book. They got it from the Windsor Library, which is always a great place to find books on Orthodox Christian theology. <laughs> and um, they were reading from it, Christians believe in three gods. And he kept going on. So finally, I just said to him, you're a liar. Get out of my house. Because it's one thing to have a robust conversation with someone where you're properly quoting Christianity and then properly quoting your view and debating but don't reinterpret and twist the nature of biblical Christianity to prop up your argument. There is no Christian in Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, or Protestantism that's worth his weight in salt that would say there's three gods. That's just simply not true. No Christian has ever said that. So don't put words into our mouths and go around my neighborhood telling everybody that's what we believe. That's a lie. It's a lie. Well, he got all huffy and left and didn't come back, and rightly so, because sometimes 
like our brother over here mentioned, you have to get tough with people who are telling lies about the content of the Christian faith. I mean, we have enough problem with people just not knowing what we believe. But when people start saying we believe things that are not true, you have to challenge that. So I've had hours upon hours upon hours. I worked for a Jehovah's Witness. Hours upon hours of conversation. And a lot of their, their uh, uh, approach boils down to, to tarring and feathering Christianity and misrepresenting it. And that's just not fair to do any more than it would be fair for us to misrepresent another religion to win brownie points. You know? So, Anyway, uh, pantheism. Uh, pantheism, we're going to look at it as a worldview. We just got one page here sort of outlining it. And then one expression of pantheism is Hinduism. So we've been looking at different worldviews. Keep in mind that a worldview is sort of a uh, a philosophy of life, basic tenets of belief or approach to life, uh, sort of tries to answer the questions, where did we come from, where are we going, what's the meaning of life, that kind of thing. And then out of that, we have religions that are attached to that worldview, or one could say are expressions of that worldview. So in other words, not every pantheist is a Hindu, but all Hindus are pantheists. So uh, pantheism, in a nutshell, is a belief that God and the world are one. Now, this is different than panentheism. Panentheism says God is in all things. So God is in you. God is in the table. God is in the air. He's in the tree. But pantheism is, is much more direct in that God and the world essentially are one and the same. So everything that's part of the created order or the spiritual world, that is, broadly speaking, God. So how would one define God? Well, technically, one would then say God, and you could have a small g, big g, rename him, how, him or it, however you want, is identical with the world. This comes from monism, which proposes that all reality is unified. So monism is the sort of the, the, the category that says all of reality is, is one. Now, some of the basic tenets are as follows. Number one, God is known through mystical intuition, which is beyond the law of non-contradiction. So one can sort of emotively or intuitively or mystically encounter God, or better said, even come to grips with their own Godness, not, uh, not so much in a logical way. It's not an issue of of. of contradiction or non-contradiction or proving it or not proving it, it's sort of a mystical encounter, a, a realization of the fact that uh, God is one, you are God, and so forth. God is defined in terms of what he is not. So um, pantheists generally don't have like a lot of attributes they could give you to describe God, the concept of God. So they wouldn't say, you know, God is love or God is gracious or argue that God is wrathful or merciful. These are kind of irrelevant categories. Uh, but rather they would be more concerned with telling you what God is not. God is not limited. God is not finite. God is not one being. Uh, God is not uh, a person. God is not a thing. All reality is God, and God is all that is reality. There is therefore an emphasis on the unity and transcendence of God. God is unified, but when we think of God, we sort of, 
in a sense, even though he is an intangible being, in a sense, we sort of think of God as uh, a, a, a being because there are certain things that, that hem him in. There's boundaries, in a sense, to our definition of God. Not spatial boundaries, not material boundaries, but God is not everything. In other words, God is, we would say God is not evil, but he is good. God is gracious, um, but he's not immoral. So there's sort of a in our mind, a concept that God has boundaries that kind of hem him in. Whereas in pantheism, uh, God is united only in the sense that he, he is everything. He is, he is all of reality. Creation, then, that which you can see and taste and touch and smell and hear, comes out of the essence of God. And in a sense, is an expression or a visualization of the reality known as God. Uh, that means that both creation and evil flow from God. So God is not so much in pantheism, it's not really an issue of morality. Is he, is he good? Is he bad? Is he for you? Is he against you? It's kind of irrelevant. God is reality, and reality is God. So issues of right and wrong, good and evil, aren't really necessarily all that relevant to our discussion about God. God is not personal or conscious. So God is not aware of God's self. Uh, nor is God personal. You don't have a personal relationship with God. Even though it is important in Hinduism to come to a knowledge of one's godness. The universe then is one. Now, here are some positives I suppose one could pull out of this worldview. It does attempt to be comprehensive. In other words, it, it attempts to take everything that you could see, touch, smell, hear, or comprehend and lump it all into one category. We might call it reality. They call it God. It emphasizes the unity of reality. In other words, you don't have to have a lot of conversation about how one being relates to the other, or the physical relates to the supernatural, or something in the supernatural, a demon relates to something in the natural. It's, it's kind of irrelevant. All, all reality is kind of unified. God is near, in a sense, because I am God, and you are God. And the coffee in front of you, in a sense, is God. It, it does acknowledge the necessity of God. In other words, it doesn't just view the world through the human senses. It does recognize that there's something beyond the physical that is, in a sense, out there and also in here. It recognizes intuition, uh, the ability to uh, intuitively know, maybe beyond the senses, to have a, an encounter of some sort with something other than oneself. And it also recognizes that we are limited in our ability to define God in positive terms. And I think Christians would feel comfortable with that as well. I mean, we have lots of positive connotations about God, but we also know that we don't know everything there is to know about God. That there is a sense in which we're limited in our ability to describe and understand God. Not only does the human languages that we speak limit our ability to communicate God, but our human minds as finite beings limit our ability to fully understand the reality of God's self. But there are some negatives associated with this worldview as well. 
And the first is that it is unprovable by man. It's actually philosophically an interesting idea. I've thought about this. A pan pantheism. We tend to write it off because the language that's associated with pantheism uh, tends to be sort of airy-fairy. But if you think about it from a philosophical perspective, it's an interesting philosophy of reality, that all reality is unified, be it the tangible or the intangible. But it is also uh, unprovable. There's no methodology that one could adopt to prove uh, this view to be true. There's no room for fellowship or worship of God if there is no real me or him. So one of the things that human beings in at least other world religions often look for is, okay, so there's a God or gods. What's my relationship with him, her, or it, or them going to be like? But pantheism is unique in that the idea of relating to another is an irrelevant conversation to have because there's no real distinction between me as I know me to be and him or it as I know him or it to be. So relate, the idea of fellowship or relationship is just not there. Third, uh, how can one claim, this is a question, how can one claim that there is only one being, one reality in a sense, but express from one's perspective to another who has actually uh, expressed that from one's perspective to another person who is actually the same person in terms of their being? Like how can you have, what's the point of dialogue? In a sense, one could say, what's the point of even promoting the worldview? Um, so, in pantheism then, Jim here really isn't, in, in reality, a distinct part of reality from me. We are one and the same. Maybe an expression of reality localized in two different bodies, but we're actually one and the same. Do you feel comfortable with that, Jim? <laughs> Uh, how can evil and good be distinguished if all is one? In a sense, discussions about good and evil are somewhat um, unnecessary, or one could say irrelevant. Five, there can be no, at least ultimately relevant. They could be temporally relevant for the nature of relationships, but ultimately they would not be irrelevant. There can be no dialogue or ultimate distinction between things or concepts, which, in fact, if you think about it, even makes thinking difficult. Because we learn by analogy, by comparison, by contrast, between concepts or genders or different beings. We define one being over and against another because it has different traits. We define certain concepts over and against others because they have differing traits, characteristics. A God cannot be person, personal without implying relationships between persons. If God is all, then pantheism, kind of at the end of the day, is not much different than atheism, which says there's no actual God, but there is a world. So one would ask the question, how is pantheism really, from a practical perspective, different than atheism? How can God be infinite and yet create a finite world and then grow and unfold within creation? This would imply a finite God who is developing with every birth, etc. To say that God is unknowable is self-defeating as the person claiming that also claims to be God. So those are some questions that uh, pantheists probably need to 
think about or be prepared to give answers to. Now, out of that, then, we have uh, Hinduism. Yeah, go ahead, Kathy. Uh, Hinduism. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in pantheism, then, we have one expression of that, which is Hinduism. So what is Hinduism? How many of you here, by the way, know, personally, a Hindu? Okay, number of you. Very good. Susie and I um, have uh, some friends, family, that are Hindus from Nepal. And we've had opportunity to have some meals with them and so forth. Um, so pantheism, Hinduism, what is Hinduism? Hinduism is an ancient pantheistic world religion. In fact, if you date the world religions of the world back to its quote-unquote founder, people who study world religions would say that Hinduism is the oldest religion in the world. Now, obviously Christians would acknowledge that in some way, but we feel uncomfortable with that in another because Christianity comes out of the Judeo Judaic faith, which we believe is a reflection of God's revelation to man right back to the creation of the world. But since Christianity, as it's come to be known, is sort of dated to Christ himself, well, Hinduism was around a long time before that. Now, there's no founder, which is kind of unique to Hinduism. Christianity points to Christ, uh, Islam points to Abraham, and then through to Muhammad. And um, Buddhism points to Buddha, so forth. But Hinduism doesn't have a founder per, per se. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why it is a very wide and diverse religion uh, and has a, a very wide and, and diverse following originating in the East. So uh, the old world, as we call it, of course, is composed of uh, Europe and Asia and Africa. The new world uh, encompasses Oceania and um, uh, the Americas, so North and South America. But the old world was considered uh, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Now, in Asia, sort of the, the heartbed of civili one of the heartbeds of civilization was a region uh, known as the Indus Valley. The Indus Valley. And it's in this region of the world. This is sort of, um, this would be like Afghanistan would be over here. So if this is the Indus Valley, uh, the Indus Valley would be to the northeast of Afghanistan. Uh, let me think, you'd have... Pakistan, I think, down here, and um, India over this side, okay? So from India, it would be like the north, I guess, west side of modern-day India. So the Indus Valley is kind of in the heart of, of Asia, and this is where Hinduism, as we now know it, sort of came to life. And here's a quote from uh, a website called hindu.org, sort of defining it. And notice that it has a lot of room for diversity. So it's not as sort of cut and dry, as creedal and categorical as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, for instance. So in order to be considered a Hindu, one needs to accept the Vedas, those would be the religious writings, with reverence, Recognition of the fact that the means or ways to salvation are diverse. 
So there's a lot of different ways to salvation. The realization of the truth that the number of gods to be worshipped is large, in fact, into the millions. That indeed is the distinguishing feature of the Hindu religion. So the distinguishing feature of the, human, the Hindu religion is, in fact, that it's extremely diverse and wide. There's millions of gods, many ways to salvation, but you need to sort of have some measure of honor and reverence for the Vedas, or the scriptures that they have. Uh, B.G. Tillich's definition of what makes one a Hindu, as quoted in India's Supreme Court, uh, the court referred to this as an adequate and satisfactory formula. So that's just in 1995. So obviously we're going to be dealing then with a lot of um, uh, wiggle room when it comes to defining the nature of Hinduism. So the Vedas are like our Bibles? Um, yeah, but they're not all compiled in one book. I'm going to show you sort of some, some elements of their religion, but there's a variety of different sources of divine revelation. So worldview category. Most Hindus are pantheistic monists. That's the majority. And then, interestingly, there are some minority groups or sects within, within Hinduism or almost like mini-religions that have come out of Hinduism but that are still tied to Hinduism that would be more like polytheists where they would sort of downplay some of the pantheistic elements and upplay just the, di the, the multiplicity uh, uh, of, of the number of gods that one could worship. Or this might sound kind of uh, self-contradictory, but uh, some of them would be considered monotheistic polytheists. <laughs> so basically what that means is that there's one supreme God, they're monotheists in some senses, but then there's a variety of lesser gods. So without denying the authority of the one, there are many underneath. So again, historical backdrop, there's no specific founder. It was a religion that as best as anthropologists can tell, sort of evolved over time since as far back as 3000 to 1500 BC. That's when it was sort of in flux. Um, up for debate, it possibly it's a mixture of Vedism and Indus Valley belief. So there, there may have been an original group just worshiping and following the Vedas and then a bunch of other belief systems in that area of the world. Or Aryan and Indus Valley polytheistic faiths kind of all blended together. But the reality is we don't really know exactly how Hinduism came about. Whereas the other religions, we kind of do know how they came about. Now, there's a lot of Hindus in the world. Some of them would be obviously more committed than others, just like in any faith. Rough estimates, somewhere between 762 million and over a billion people would at least say, hey, I'm a Hindu. I, in some way, shape, or form, agree with, uh, uh, the, the, in broad strokes, the, the nature of the Hindu faith. By the way, since Hindus are so open about their beliefs, it's actually very easy to have a conversation with Hindus. The problem is this, is that Christianity is boxed in by certain beliefs. There's certain things that we believe are true and not true. So it's very easy to get a Hindu to church. It's very easy to have conversations with Hindus. It's very easy to be respected by Hindus, to have good relationships with Hindus, but to move from, well, sort of anything goes to actually there's a box of truth you sort of have to subscribe to. That's where the difficulty arrives. So I mean, Susie and I have even had invited Hindus to this church 
and they've willfully come to a service with food, actually, because they thought they were supposed to bring it to offer to the gods. We just enjoyed the brownies or whatever they were that they brought. So Hinduism then would be considered the third largest uh, religion on earth next to uh, Christianity and um, Islam. There's only one official Hindu state in the world, and you might be surprised to know that it's Nepal. So India, in fact, is not officially a Hindu state, but Nepal is officially a Hindu state. And ethnically, a lot of the people in Nepal are very closely related to the people in India. Uh, in Canada, there's several tens of thousands of Hindus, and that number's rising. In fact, uh, that number probably is already out of date. So that number is rising because we know that there's a lot of uh, immigration from uh, Asia, South, South Asia, Hin uh, especially India and so forth, into uh, our, our country. In fact, we have a, f a fair number of um, uh, Christians or people that are at least checking out the Christian faith who are from uh, India that go to the Vine Church on Saturday nights. So let's talk a little bit more then about the Hindu belief system. Now, some of these things are just, we're just going to be parroting what we talked about in pantheism, and, and others are going to sort of be a little more specific. So with regard to God, when you're talking to a Hindu and you use the word God, you can't assume that your concept of the letters G-O-D are the same as their concept of the letters G-O-D. It's a different concept. We're still using the same word, but it's a different concept. It's, 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 it's kind of like uh, when you're talking to someone in Islam, and some Christians have the debate, well, is there any difference between Allah and God? Yes, there is. Even if Muslims use the English word God, G-O-D, their concept of God is not the same concept as the Christian God. And even more separate or different are the Hindu concepts of God and the Christian concepts of God. So within Hinduism, when they say God, they're okay with the idea that there are many gods, not tens of gods, not hundreds of gods, not thousands of gods, millions, literally millions of gods. The highest god is known as Brahma or ultimate reality. Brahma, however, is different than our concept of, let's say, Yahweh. Brahma is impersonal. He does not possess attributes. An attribute is, like a, roughly speaking, a characteristic. That is, it's, it's different than a characteristic. A characteristic could sort of be an outward manifestation of who you are. An attribute is an outward manifestation of who you are because it's part of who you are. It flows from your actual makeup or being. So, for instance, you could possess um, physical attributes that aren't actually part of, like, your internal makeup. Or you could manifest um, characteristics of um, uh, holiness, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a holy interior. So an, an attribute's a little bit deeper than a, uh, a characteristic, but nevertheless, Brahma is impersonal. He's without attributes. For some Hindus, because there's a lot of diversity in Hinduism, they would feel comfortable calling him the creator or it, the creator or sustainer. 
Contradictory beliefs about God are permissible. So within Hinduism, it's okay to have different views. If you say there's only 10,000 gods and this person says there's a zillion, that's fine. No reason to fight. There's 330 million other gods named at this point in Hinduism outside of Brahma or ultimate reality. I don't think any one person knows all those names, but there's been up to 330 million other gods identified within the Hindu uh, faith. So that's quite a few. Now, how about the universe? For us, the universe is localized. It's finite. We don't know how big it is, but it's finite. It's created. It, is, it has a beginning, and it will have an end. But for the Hindu, they think about the concept of universe differently than we do. So again, don't assume you're using the same word with the same meaning. The universe is reality. Uh, reality is... Ultimately, though, unreal or an illusion. Again, you've got to kind of think about this and, and sort of digest it because it's very different than how Christians think and very different than how the Western mind often thinks. This is called maya. So reality is unreal or an illusion in the strictest sense. The physical universe is, in fact, a hindrance to you experiencing, once again, ultimate reality. So the fact that, for instance, your life is just a portion of reality which is currently localized in a body makes it difficult for you to understand where you came from or to reconnect with the with ultimate reality so th this is like a, in a sense a, a curse to be limited to a physical body because it robs us from the ability to understand what ultimate reality is we've sort of forgotten in a sense what ultimate reality truly is Ultimate reality is God, and all reality is God. When Hindus speak of uh, God, uh, interestingly, they often depict God using three faces, or better said, like three functions of this divine essence. So you'll, you might see like a statue with three faces on it in Hindu worship. And Brahma is the face that represents the creator, uh, Vishnu is uh, the destroyer, or sorry, the preserver, and Shiva is the destroyer. So in sort of English language, you have the generator, the operator, and the destroyer, G-O-D, and that's God. This is more like what modern Hindus have put together to sort of align with uh, English words. So Brahma is the creator, the preserver, and the destroyer. So there's an aspect or an element or a function of God that creates, an aspect or an element of God that preserves, and an aspect that destroys. Holy books. The Vedas. The Vedic literature are a series of texts written between 2000 and 700 BC, roughly. And um, they compo are composed of Lesser books, or not lesser books, but a variety of books, Vedas, Brahmanas, Aranyayas, and Upanishads. I've probably mispronounced all of those. They are considered authoritative, and they are considered sacred books that introduce people to ultimate reality, higher reality. The early Vedas, interestingly, are more polytheistic. So if you read the ol older ones, they talk more about a lot of gods. If you read the later ones, they talk more about God as uh, all reality is God. Rea uh, and all that is real is God. All that is God is, is real. 
Then there's some writings that were written in and around 500 BC, and those were added to establish the caste system. We'll talk about the caste system, but essentially you have a series of different levels of humanity within the caste system. And the lowest level is technically outside of the caste system. And then below them, we have various forms of animal life, from more significant forms of animal life, like cows, down to serpents or germs and whatever else. And the basic idea is that you're sort of moving up through those life forms through a series of reincarnations. And when you kind of get into the human category, there's then four levels on top of the untouchables that you work through in order to ultimately go back into the cosmic one, which is God. So in order to sort of um, communicate and get in touch with this cosmic reality known as God, we, we need to talk about the word Om. Now, it's sort of written in a couple different ways. There's O-M or A-U-M. Uh, Om is the most sacred symbol in Hindu Dharma, Hindu worship. Om, Om, the A comes from the throat, the U and the M is formed by the lips, is in Hindu thinking the sound of the infinite. Now again, it sounds weird because we don't think this way, but you need to understand this is how a billion people on earth think. That Om is the sound of the infinite. Om is said to be the essence of all mantras. So a mantra is some sort of a chant or repetitious religious utterance that one would say in order to help uh, bring them out of their localized self and reconnect them with the cosmic one. So again, these are, these are methods in Dharma and worship to try to help you to step out of your localized self and reconnect with, with ultimate reality. So it's the essence of all of the mantras that they would chant. It's the highest of all mantras or the divine word. It is uh, Brahma itself. So Om is said to be the essence of the Vedas. By sound and form, it symbolizes the infinite Brahma, Brahman, ultimate reality, and the entire universe. It's divided into three ideas. Om stands for creation, which is linked then to um, Brahma. The U stands for preservation, which is linked back to Vishnu. And the M stands for destruction or dissolution, which is linked back to Shiva. So notice we, we said a few moments ago that the Hindu trinity, for lack of a better word, is the three faces or functions of the divine, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, creator, preserver, destroyer. And Om is the sound of the infinite that represents those three, which are in fact ultimate reality, one. The three letters are also said to indicate three lanes, planes of existence, heaven, earth, and the netherworld. So heaven would be like the, the place within which one would be fully in tune with ultimate reality. Uh, earth is our localized existence. And the netherworld would be like a, uh, more of a hellish or death-like state that one is trying to work oneself out of. According to Hinduism, all the words, all the words produced by the human vocal organ can be represented by Om. A is produced by the throat, U and M by the lips. In the Vedas, Om is the sound of the sun, the sound of light. It's the sound of ascent and 
uh, ascent and ascent, so affirmation and upward movement that uplifts the soul as the sound of a divine eagle or falcon. Now, um, I think when I was first exposed to this, I'll just be honest with you, my initial inclination was to laugh. Because in some ways, one could say, that's just so weird. Like, give me a break. But we have to be a little bit careful about uh, that response because it is something that, again, a billion people in the world believe in. And it, it is something that sort of flows out of a lot of meditation, a lot of thinking in the absence of divine revelation as to how we describe our existence and our function here on earth. And I would say that while you might find this to be really weird, there is something about this belief that you can kind of understand. In other words, if you are raised in an environment, let's say you are in the Indus Valley, 3,500 years ago, and you're sitting out on some plateau and you're asking questions that people ask about where I came from, where I'm going, what is the meaning of life, what's the purpose of life, and you have no revelation whatsoever. You have no divine revelation. You have no understanding of uh, the laws of the prophets. You've sort of forgotten about who the living God is. And you just start to philosophize and think and meditate. And then that is sort of uh, fed into by others around you and generations go by and decades come by. It's not, it's not really that difficult to believe how people could arrive at this kind of a conclusion that all reality is one, God is all. It's just, it's just kind, of a, it's, it's kind of a nebulous explanation, an all-encompassing explanation for... Uh, life. And then mantras and chants like Om, in the absence of truth to guide and direct and shape the mind. It's not uncommon in many tribes and religions around the world for people to, in, in an effort to try to reconnect with ultimate reality, get themselves into chants and mantras. And I mean, there's even sects of Christianity that emphasize ex checking out, like check Check out the mind, shut it down, uh, just contemplate and meditate upon one word over and over again. And you sort of lift yourself out of the doldrums of life. And somehow there's a release and a, a sense of meaning and connectivity in all of this. So th I believe that that's how this kind of came about. It's the absence of revelation. So in that sense, we should you know, have a, a measure of respect, but also a measure of sorrow for people that have bought into this stuff because they've bought into this uh, in the absence of divine revelation and become all mixed up in all of that. So uh, many people in the world believe in this. It's probably better at this point for us to try to understand it in part rather than laugh at it. And in understanding it, we're going to then be better equipped to uh, have some robust, robust debate about it.